We are going to be in Genesis today, if you want to turn there, or you can just follow along in your Bible. We're going to be looking at uh, three chapters, kind of in summary, chapter 12, chapter 15, and chapter 17. And we're looking at the story of Abraham and Sarah today, Abram and Sarai. And today the name that we're talking about is El Shaddai. El Shaddai, which for many of you older people like me was very popularized by Amy Grant's song back in the 90s or 80s, whatever it was, but beautiful song about God Almighty. El Shaddai literally means the Lord God Almighty or the Lord God Our Sufficiency. The name appears seven times in the Old Testament, and then simply the word Shaddai appears another 41 times. But we're introduced to this name of God in chapter 17 of Genesis, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Just to let you know, we're going to end the series next week on Labor Day weekend, and we're going to talk about God as Emmanuel, God with us through Jesus. And something I had never really thought about before that we're going to bring to light is how Jesus is all of the names of God with us, and tangibly uh, God in us, God with us, and how powerful that is. So that's going to be exciting to talk about. But chapter 17 of Genesis, Abram receives a visit from the Lord. And God introduces himself to Abram, which was his name there, and us as El Shaddai. Uh, in the context of a covenant, and a covenant, simply put, is really a promise. It's a formal, official agreement that God makes with his people. Really, the Old Testament is the Old Covenant. The New Testament is the New Covenant. Uh, in the English dictionary, covenant is described as tangible proof which is fascinating. We, we seldom think of God's covenant as tangible proof. We, we think of it as something that we have to prove, but the, the proof is there in the testimony and the record that God has given to us. It's also translated as a creed. And you think of a creed as something that you rehearse and that you corporately proclaim together what we believe and affirming what we believe, the truth about God, the truth about his promises. But originally, God exposed his covenant to Abram in Genesis 12, 24 years before he announced uh, his name as El Shaddai. And this is what he said to Abram in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. He said, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great so that you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. An amazing promise. But if you notice, there is no, there are no specific details there about how that promise would come about. How that covenant would be fulfilled. Particularly, it's not clear there that God would make Abram a blessing to the entire world through an heir, through one of his descendants. That's not really clear there. And so Abram knows that God's going to use him in a mighty way and and have a powerful impact upon the world. But that's not entirely clear. What you need to know about a covenant is that God's covenants always involve blessing. They always involve blessing. But contrary to our American mindset, blessing is not just for us. Blessings are about what God does in us and through us in order to bless not only us, but the people around us. And many of us have a very short-sighted view of blessing 
because we're praying for blessing upon ourselves and our family, and God desires to do that, but ultimately, <coughs> excuse me, he desires to do that in order that we might be a blessing to our community and to our neighborhoods and to our workplaces and to the area around us. That's what God desires to do through blessing. So when God told Abram he was going to bless him, it wasn't merely a promise to bring about good things to Abram, but it was to bring about good in Abram that would also have an impact so that all the families of the earth would be blessed, as, as the scripture says. Fast forwarding 11 years to Genesis chapter 15. We know it's 11 years, interestingly enough, for those of you who love to get into this. In chapter 17 of Genesis, verse 25, at that point, Abraham, Abram becomes Abraham, and God makes an, a new covenant with him, and Abraham is circumcised, and it says that Ishmael is circumcised also. And Ishmael, at that point, when Abram is 99, is 13 years old. So you do the math, and you work backwards, and you find out in chapter 15, Abraham is 86. And he's beginning to question God's promise that was made to him 11 years earlier when he was 75 in Genesis 12. And this is what he says in Genesis 15, verses 2 to 4. He says, O sovereign Lord, what good are your blessings when I don't even have a son? Many of us can relate to that. God, you've done a lot of good things in my life, but here's the thing I've been really praying for, really asking for, and I don't see any way that it's going to happen. There's, there's no answers on the horizon. And so I appreciate your blessings, but what, what good are those when I don't have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eleazar of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all of my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Verse 4, then the Lord said to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. So at this point, 11 years later, 11 long years after God made the promise, God clarifies and says, I'm going to make you a blessing to the rest of the world and to all the nations of the earth through one of your direct heirs, not a servant's heir in your household, but your own flesh and blood. God responded quickly and clearly to Abram that the heir would come from his own body. It wouldn't be born simply by somebody who was within his household. Ironically, this clarification, this new information, rather than reinforcing Abraham and Sarah's faith in God, sent them looking for other solutions. And that's when, as you know, the story goes, uh, you know, Sarah is, um, says, I'm barren. She's blaming it on God. She knows God has full control over that. And she's really kind of putting it back on him. Like, I can't have children. God could do something about it, but he hasn't. So the answer must be for you to sleep with Hagar, our maid, my maidservant, and have children through her. So because God wasn't fast enough in delivering on the promise, Abraham and Sarah are going to help God out. And we've all done that. We've all, you know, we can laugh at that. We can say, oh gosh, what little, you know. We can make our commentaries all day long, but there have been situations in all of our lives where God did not work on our own timetable. And so we came up with our own strategies and plans. Like God needed us to have a brainstorming session for him because he was just tapped out, you know. After creating the universe and running it for, you know, ages and ages, he just was drawn a blank and needed our help. And so that's what they're doing here. They're trying to help God out. And if you're familiar with the rest of the story... 
The, the result, uh, Ishmael being born and the, the Arab nation that came from him was not only devastating to the people of that time, but it has played out to be devastating for generations and generations as the Israelites and the Arabs have been in constant con- conflict and turmoil because of that decision. Well, this story is the backdrop that I want to use today, the context, the springboard for talking about the name El Shaddai. First, because God, for the first time in Scripture, reveals himself as El Shaddai to Abraham in Genesis 17, but also because I believe that this story highlights and reveals at least three aspects of what El Shaddai means and and how he works uh, powerfully. So if you're taking notes on the outline, I want to suggest that God's sufficiency is revealed or highlighted, first of all, in our wondering. In our wondering. If you want to fill them out now, it's going to be in our wondering, in our weakness, and in our waiting. That's where we're going today. First of all, El Shaddai is revealed or highlighted in our wondering. And what do I mean by wondering? I mean mean our doubts. That dark moment of the soul when we ask the tough questions. The things that don't seem to make sense. When what God has said in his word and the reality that we're experiencing in our world, when, when the, there's a disconnect, they don't, they don't align. And we struggle because there's a tension there. Like, I believe God, I believe his word, but I'm not seeing that in my life. I'm not seeing it in the answers to my prayers and the things going on around me. And we struggle with that. Leslie Newbegin, a famous missionary, once said, If one doubts everything, one learns nothing. On the other hand, believing everything uncritically is the road to disaster. The role of doubt is essential. So as we are learning and deciding and processing things, doubt plays a very critical role in our lives and in our our processing of decisions and uh, scripture and so many other things. The famous theologian Frederick Bruckner once said, Doubts are the ants in the pants of faith. I like that. They're the ants in the pants of faith. They keep it awake and they keep it moving. I like that. I love most of all what Tim Keller said, author and pastor Tim Keller. He said, A faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it, which we can all relate to during this last few years. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask the hard questions about why they believe as they do will either find themselves defenseless against the experiences of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if they have failed over the years to listen patiently to their own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. So what's he saying? He's saying if we just carelessly or thoughtlessly take in information at church or wherever we learn from Scripture and theology and truth, and if we just accept it without ever questioning it, that can be difficult because it can be just as quickly dismantled if we've never owned it and wrestled with it and made it our own. And so doubt can be very formative and helpful in that process to really own something for yourself, not just because your parents told you or your pastor told you or your your college or seminary professor told you, but because you have come to believe that yourself. So important. Even the great preacher Spurgeon once said, some of us 
who have preached the word for years and have been the means of working faith in others and establishing them in the knowledge of the fundamental doctrines of the Bible have nevertheless been the subjects of the most fearful and violent doubts as to the truth of the very gospel we have preached. Spurgeon saying, even some of us as pastors have those moments where we are having serious doubts as to the truth of what we've been preaching and telling people for so long. That's honesty. That's authenticity. And the point is not just throwing it up and, and, and abandoning it, but the point is to wrestle through it and to come out on the other side stronger and more affirmed in your faith. Jesus distinguished and differentiated many times in Scripture between doubt and unbelief. And I want to take a moment to clarify that. Doubt is saying, I can't believe, or I struggle to believe. We see that with the Father in Mark chapter 9, who said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Like, I really want to believe, but I'm struggling. Assist me. That's doubt. Unbelief is refusing to believe. It's saying, I won't believe. Not, I struggle to believe, but I won't believe. Doubt is honesty. Unbelief is obstinacy. Doubt is looking for light. Unbelief is content with darkness. See the difference between doubt and unbelief? There's a big difference. In Genesis 17, at Abram's moment of deepest doubt and despair, it's interesting that at that point, God reveals his name as El Shaddai. I am God Almighty. I am the God of sufficiency, or all sufficiency. El is the singular form of Elohim. And as you recall, Elohim was the first name that we talked about in our series. Elohim means, anybody remember? Genesis 1-1? Creator God, yes. Elohim is God, the creator, the one who started it all in motion. And so El comes from that. Shad actually, the root word literally means breast. It means breast. And in short, the name El Shaddai, when coupled with its root meaning, presents an image of God as the one who supplies the nourishment needed to sustain life. Nourishment needed to sustain life. So it's kind of a mother nursing her child, just taking her close. And that's kind of the picture of what God wants us to do in our doubts, is not to run from him, not to abandon what we believe, but to lean in. To lean in and draw truth and strength and comfort and nourishment from him. Powerful image there. I love what uh, Michael Polanyi, he's a Hungarian researcher, and he, he brilliantly points out that you can't doubt something without spontaneously trusting in something else. The moment you doubt one thing, it's because you're beginning to trust in something else. And he said that's exactly what Eve did in the garden. She doubted God and she started trusting the serpent, the lie, the deception that the serpent had interjected there. And again, there's, there's nothing wrong with doubts. It's, it's what we do with our doubts. Do we allow our doubts to drive us away from God or do we trust God in the midst of our doubts to come and to lean in closer to him and to discover who he is? As I said, to find the answers, the truth, the comfort, the strength, the nourishment that we need. God is bigger than our questions. He's bigger than our doubts. So, first of all, El Shaddai is revealed or highlighted in our wondering. Secondly, I believe El Shaddai is highlighted 
and revealed in our weakness, in our weakness. And the question I would begin with today is, have you ever fully come to the place of acknowledging and understanding your inability to bring about or fulfill what God has promised in your life? What do I mean by that? God has made it very clear to you that this is what's going to happen, or this is the dream that you have, and, and God has affirmed that, yes, that's what I'm going to do, and yet you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. And you want to make it happen, but you have absolutely no power to make it happen. Maybe you want to have children, but you're not even married yet. Maybe you are married and you can't conceive. Maybe you want a certain job to use the gifts and skills you have, but you haven't got that opportunity. A million different scenarios of something in front of you that you can't make happen, and you come face to face with your own human inadequacy and weakness. That's where God as El Shaddai and sufficiency is is revealed. And I, I want to take a moment here to say that the English understanding of sufficiency and the biblical understanding are completely different. When we say sufficient in English, we mean adequate. We kind of mean like the minimal expectations. We were joking about this earlier in the week. If you get a job review and all of your things are sufficient, sufficient, you're feeling dissed. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I just met the bare minimum. You know, whoa, you did what we expected you to do. And I never went above and beyond that. I never impressed you. I never, you know, wowed you. Just was sufficient. You'd be like really hurt. But sufficiency in the Bible means everything provided. All of your needs are taken care of. There is nothing lacking. The Lord is my shepherd. I, I, I have everything I need. You know, I, I, I have no lack. I have no want. That's what sufficiency means in Scripture. John Calvin once said this, Men have no taste for God's power until they are convinced of their need of it. And they immediately forget its value unless they are continually reminded by awareness of their weaknesses. God uses our weaknesses to continually remind us that he is the all-sufficient one, not us. He is the one with the answers, not us. And we continually forget that without that reminding. One person said that our weaknesses are designed to point people to God's strengths. That's something to chew on this week. You and I often believe that others will find the Lord as I present my perfection. As they see me in all of my strength and all of my gifts, they're going to go like, wow, that's powerful. I want to be like that. We, we seldom consider that God is using us in our weaknesses to point to his perfection and his strength so that our friends and other people that are searching for answers aren't saying, wow, you know, Pastor Dupar's really got it together. I want, you know, Pastor Dupar's a mess, but he knows a powerful God. God who always bails them out. God who works all things together for good. I mean, our weaknesses are designed to point to God's strengths and his perfection. Watchman Nee, who was the great Chinese evangelist of the 20th century, said, God's means of delivering us from sin is not by making us stronger and stronger, but by making us weaker and weaker. That is surely Rather, a peculiar way of victory, you say, but it's the divine way. God sets us free from the dominion of sin, not by strengthening our old man, 
but by crucifying him. Not by helping him to do anything, but by removing him from the scene of action completely. God works in weakness in a powerful way. Dwight L. Moody once said, True faith is man's weakness leaning on God's strength. I like that. True faith is our weakness leaning upon God's strength. That's a picture of El Shaddai. Annie Flint, many of you know, um, she wrote hundreds of hymns, some of the most beautiful hymns that those of us who grew up on hymns and loved Many were hymns that she wrote, and she had disability after disability physically. She just had a very, very hard life, blindness and all sorts of things, and yet she wrote beautiful songs of God, scripture to, to music. She wrote the song, He Giveth More Grace, and I love the lyrics. When we have exhausted our store of endurance, when our strength has failed ere the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no measure. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of his infinite riches in Jesus, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. Written by somebody who had a very hard life. But when people asked, how do you do it? How do you make it? He giveth more grace. He giveth more grace. I, I will never forget asking my high school sponsor, who I dearly loved, who drove the bus for all of our youth tours and choirs, his wife died of breast cancer. And I'm like, Tom, how are you hanging in there? And he said, you have no idea the grace that God gives in situations like this. From the outside, it seemed impossible. It seemed like, how do you make it? How do you continue to go on victoriously? He said, God giveth more grace. God continually reminds you and I that he's the creator God. He's the God that put it all in motion. He's the God who made something out of nothing, Hebrews 11.3. He's the sustainer of all life. He's El Shaddai. He can work it out. He doesn't need our help. He doesn't need our solutions, our suggestions. He doesn't need our human methodology, methodology to work out his divine plans. God has the power to bring into the visible physical realm that which only exists in the invisible realm. He doesn't need raw materials with which to work because as scripture affirms, he created ex nihilo, out of nothing. He didn't start with oxygen and, you know, carbon dioxide and all of these things that they said started the big, yeah, maybe that started the big bang, but where did those things come from? God, you know, he brings things into being that don't exist. El Shaddai is both the creator and the sustainer of life, and he loves to manifest his power in the midst of the impossible. And that's where our weakness comes in. I love this story that Johnny Erickson Tata tells. She says, when I was in Germany speaking at a church, a blind woman named Elizabeth served as my interpreter. You can imagine the two of us on stage, me with my wheelchair and Elizabeth with her white cane. During a break, someone placed an English, English language magazine on my lap. It looked like a good read, but with my quadriplegia, I couldn't hold the magazine or turn its pages. Elizabeth, I said, how about if you hold the magazine and turn the pages and I'll read out loud? That way we can both enjoy it. And that's exactly what we did. 
I needed her, and she needed me. And together we accomplished something that blessed both of us. She says, that is how the body of Christ should work. Our combined weaknesses become delightful strengths. I love that. That's the body of Christ. Our combined weaknesses become delightful strengths. Because where I'm lacking in one of you is strong. And where you're lacking in an area, I have a strength. And together, our combined weaknesses yield delightful strengths. How powerful that is. I love what the Apostle Paul, you know, in Scripture, 2 Corinthians, he, he has that thorn in the flesh, which nobody knows. Was that failing eyesight? Was that all of his physical conditions from being whipped so many and beaten so many times? We don't know what it was. But he pleaded with God at least three times that God would deliver him. And God chose not to. And instead, God responded by saying this, 2 Corinthians 12:9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. So Paul goes on to say, Most gladly, therefore, will I boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. God said, Your weaknesses are fine. In fact, I'm going to leave your weaknesses because your weaknesses speak and point to my power. And my power is actually made perfect in weakness. So we're going to leave it this way. You know, powerful stuff. The last point, God's almighty sufficiency is not only revealed in our wondering and in our weakness, but also in our waiting, in our waiting. In Genesis 17, after hearing the name El Shaddai, Abraham fell flat on his face before the Lord before the God who can create and sustain life. At this point, he's 99 years old. Sarah is still not able to conceive. 24 years, 24 long years after God made the promise, they're in the same situation. Some of you are waiting to be promoted at work. Some of you are waiting to find the spouse of your dream to get married. Some of you are waiting to have kids. On and on and on, but 24 long years, you start doubting. You start wondering if God is true. And at this point, God goes ahead and gives him a new name. He names him Abraham. Abram means exalted father. Abraham means father of a multitude. So at this point, God makes it clear, you're not only going to be exalted among men, but you're going to be a father of a multitude. You're going to be the direct father of a, of a horde of people, a multitude. God wanted Abraham to be reminded every time someone spoke his name, that he had made a covenant with him, and that he would bring it about, that he was faithful. This is what Genesis 17, to 5 says. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am El Shaddai, God Almighty. Serve me faithfully and live a blameless life, and I will make a covenant with you, by which I will guarantee to give you countless descendants. At this, Abram fell down to the ground on his face. Then God said to him, this is my covenant with you. I will make you the father of a multitude of nations. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Instead, you will be called Abraham, for you will be the father of many nations. God finally is delivering on what he promised through the waiting, through the waiting. I said many of us can identify with things in our life that we have waited for weeks, months, years to happen. And it's agonizing, and you, you can identify. One of my uh, professors at seminary, I love what he said. He said, waiting is the hardest work of hope. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. Beautiful, powerful stuff.
John Piper said, To wait on God means to pause and soberly consider our own inadequacy in the Lord's all-sufficiency. To, to pause and soberly consider our own inadequacy compared to His all-sufficiency. All-sufficiency. I was reading somebody this week that said, the lie of our modern digital age is the idea that waiting is keeping us from obtaining what we want. And it's holding us back from living a more fulfilling and productive life. That's what the world is telling us today. You shouldn't have to wait on anything that you want. And if you have to wait, it's holding you back on, on your best. And Scripture's saying, no, waiting is controlled by a sovereign God who, who designs it and uses it for his best in our life. Totally different picture. As many of you know, my wife and I went to Westmont College, and after our time there, the chaplain of Westmont College was Ben Patterson. And I had him many times to speak to the men's group at Ventura Missionary Church. And since that time, I've written countless things that he's written over the years. And I have just come to this amazing appreciation for this guy's wisdom and insight. And I love, he wrote this book called Waiting, Finding God When God Seems Silent. And it's just awesome. I've got to get the book because I've read so much good from it. But listen to some of these insights. He says, waiting is not just the thing we have to do until we get what we hope for. Waiting is part of the process of becoming what we hope for. What we become as we wait is at least as important as the thing that we wait for. To wait in hope is not just to pass the time until the wait is over. It is to see the time passing as part of the process that God is using to make us into the people He created us to be. Wow. I could chew on that for a month. At least as important as the things we want and wait for is the work God wants to do in us as we wait. That He says, picture a blazing hot forge and a piece of gold thrust into, into it to be heated until all that is impure and false is burned out. As it is heated, it is also softened and shaped by the metal worker. Our faith is the gold. Our suffering is the fire. The forge is the waiting. It's the tension and the longing at times, the anguish of waiting for God to keep His promises. It isn't easy to wait. It demands persistence when common sense says just give up. It says believe when there is no present evidence to back it up. Faith is forged in delay. Character is forged in delay. The forge is the gap between the promise and the fulfillment. As gold is purified and shaped in the white hot heat of a forge, so we in our faith are purified and shaped in the waiting. Powerful. That's what Scripture is telling us. The prophet Isaiah would say in that famous chapter, Isaiah 40, verse 31, those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not be weary. They will walk and not faint. That's the promise of Scripture. I read this week that in 1924, I wish Francis is here to hear this. You'll love this, Francis. In 1924, Dallas Theological Seminary almost went bankrupt. On the day it was to foreclose at noon, Dr. Harry Ironside, the president, 
held a prayer meeting in his office and prayed, prayed a prayer that he had often prayed. He said, Lord, we know the cattle on a thousand hills are yours. Please sell some of them and give us the money. I like that. Very practical. As he prayed with some staff and faculty, a Texas oilman walked into the receptionist's office and told her, I just sold two carloads of cattle in Fort Worth. I've been trying to make a business deal go through forever, and it won't work. And I've been compelled to give this money to the seminary. I don't know if you need this, but here's the check. The secretary burst into the room where the men were praying and said, Dr. Ironside, she said to Dr. Ironside, Harry, God just sold the cattle. (laughs) I love that. God brings about his promise. He fulfills when we wait upon him. As we close today, I just want to affirm to you that today, if you have, if you have at one point in your life trusted Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you have entered into the new covenant with God. It's a covenant that's not based upon your righteousness, what you get right, what you do right, but it's based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ and what he accomplished for you and for me on the cross. The essence of Christianity is not do, do, do. It's what's been done in the name of Jesus. We need to know that. And Jesus instituted that new covenant in 1 Corinthians 11 when he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Tim Keller says this. He says, every other religion and philosophy says you have to do something to connect to God. But Christianity says, no, Jesus Christ came to do for you what you couldn't do for yourself. Every other religion says, here are the answers to the big questions. But Christianity says Jesus is the answer to all of them. So many systems of thought appeal to strong, successful people because they play directly into their belief that if you're strong and hardworking enough, you will prevail. But Christianity is not just for the strong. It is for everyone, especially for people who admit that where it really counts, they are weak. It is for people who have the strength to admit that their flaws are not merely superficial, that their heart is deeply disordered, and that they are incapable of fixing themselves, that they acknowledge that they need a Savior, that I need a Savior, that you need a Savior. An old shoemaker's owl, A-W-L, is prominently displayed in the French Academy of Science. That owl fell from a shoemaker's table one day and put out the eye of his nine-year-old son. Soon the child became blind in both eyes and had to attend a school for the blind. At this school, the child learned to read by handling large carved wooden blocks. When the shoemaker's son grew up, he thought of a new way for the blind to read. It involved punching tiny dots onto paper. And Lewis Braille devised this new method using the same owl that blinded him in his youth. The moral of this is that there is a falling, a falling owl in each one of our lives. And when it strikes, many of us will say, God, why did you allow that? Why did you allow that? The better question is, God, how will you use this? How will you use this? 
If we're, all, if we're only looking at the things that we can physically see, if we're only focused on the tangible, we're going to miss a lot of stuff. If we're just focused on the stuff that we can produce in our own strength, the stuff that we can bring about in our own efforts, we're going to miss a lot of stuff that God is doing in us and through us to bless other people. In a few moments, I'm going to invite the team up right now. The next song we're going to sing is a song called Take Courage. And I just want to, I want to just rehearse these words to you because they are so spot on with everything we've talked about today. Slow down, take time. Breathe in, he said. He'd reveal what's to come. The thoughts in his mind, always higher than mine. He'll reveal all to come. So take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. Hold on to your hope as your triumph unfolds. He's never failing, never failing. Sing praise, my soul. Find strength and joy. Let his words lead you on. Do not forget his great faithfulness. He'll finish all he's begun. So take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. Hold on to your hope as your triumph unfolds. He's never failing, never failing. And you who hold the stars, who call them each by name, will surely keep your promise to me that I will rise in victory. I love that part about hold on to your hope as your triumph unfolds because the thing we're holding on to doesn't start out as our triumph. It starts out as our trial. And we think, why in the world would I hold on to this? I hate this. This reminds me of my inadequacy and my weakness. This is something I want to be rid of. And God says, hold on to it, because I'm turning it into your triumph. God is encouraging each one of us today to hold on to El Shaddai. He knows us. He loves us. He will sustain us when we trust him to fulfill his promises in us and through us. He'll meet us in our wondering and our doubts. He'll sustain us in our sufficient, he'll be our sufficiency in our weakness, and he'll sustain us in times of waiting. I love what Isaiah 49, 23 says. It says, those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Those who hopefully wait for me will not be put to shame. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. Let's pray. Father God, powerful, powerful stuff today from your word about your all-sufficiency and your almighty character revealed through our wondering and our, our weakness and our waiting. God, may we embrace these things as something that you use for your glory and your kingdom. And may we have the faith to hang in there and see how you use them in our lives. God, as we give back to you today from what you've given to us, whether we physically do that here at church or online through the website, God, we pray that you would take the money that we give and use it for your kingdom to support the ministry here at CBC and those employed to do your work and the ministries in this community that we support and our missionaries around the world that are furthering your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.